We welcome you. Um, it is a privilege to have you in attendance at this session of the AASLH conference today. My name is Laurie Hillier, and the event that you have selected to attend is a panel discussion titled Putting Meat on the Bones Using Genealogy to Personalize Family History. We will hear remarks from Dr. Newell G. Bringhurst, who you don't see his body here, but his spirit is here, and we'll still hear his remarks. Um, Dr. L. Teresa Church is with us, as well as Craig L. Foster, all of whom you will receive more detailed information, um, a more detailed introduction. Following the last speaker, we will then open the session to a Q&A. Um, and a general discussion of the title subject. Just, uh, I want to mention one housekeeping item. This session is being recorded. The podcast will be available for purchase after the conference. All speakers will use um, the microphones for that reason. And any questions um, during our Q&A time, we will uh, make sure we repeat that question so that that is, that is clear and distinct in the recording. May I tell you a little bit, um, just a brief introduction about my background and some of my insights from my personal and professional experience. I am a research consultant at the Family History Library, currently working in the U.S. and Canada Reference Unit um, with previous assignments in library public affairs and VIP services, as well as international records in the photo duplication unit. I am an educator and curriculum specialist, author, speaker, and historian. And some of my most valuable references come from library patrons I meet on a daily basis from around the world, from hundreds of fourth graders, um, and most importantly, from my own descendants, or also known as grandkids. Um, my mission statement embraces the identity and the bequeathing of a personal legacy from generations past um, to present and future generations. Be that patrons uh, that can personally walk through the front door of the library or that can access the collection of the library worldwide, also from students and posterity. You know, on any given um, morning, and particularly on Monday mornings, if you were to... Um, walk past the Family History Library, you would note a really long line. You know, you think of the, the little kids waiting at the bus stop, and they set down their, their backpacks and run off and play until the school bus comes. That's what I think of. Um, but waiting patiently in the pre-dawn hours, up to an hour, an hour and a half before those doors open, um, the line may stretch out to the sidewalk and down the block. Um, Visitors come from throughout the world to use the Family History Library collection. First through the doors at the beginning of this week was a group from the Vernon County, Wisconsin Historical Society. And these good souls had come by bus. And gosh, I think that's a long way to come on a bus. Um, We didn't used to think anything of it, did we? But this day and age with um, 60,000 airline flights a day, um, they, they had made a long trip to come. We have a group that comes from France every year for two weeks. Why would they come all the way, halfway around the world um, to use the records in this collection, the records of their own country, in fact? Um, we have a gr- another organization that comes annually from New Zealand um, and at a great expense of travel and lodging, but once they walk through those doors, um, 
everything, it's an open collection, and there is no expense except for the nickel photocopy, and if they have a flash drive, they won't even be expending that nickel there. Just briefly, let me tell you a little bit about the resources of the Family History Library. How many of you have had a chance maybe to slip over there? I know you've had a really busy, busy schedule. Um, I, if you have not, I invite you to do that. Yesterday on the reference counter, I assisted a patron that um, uh, she had... Um, she told me that she had come last last year here for a convention in the Salt Palace, just had that little tiny window of opportunity to slip over to the library, had such great success that this year um, the conference was held in another part of the country, but she spent, uh, she scheduled an entire week to, to dedicated research at the library because she had such a great experience. I certainly extend to you an invitation for the opportunity to come over and check out um, some of the great restore resources to historians and genealogists. And, and actually, we have people from a, a wide variety of professional fields using that collection. Um, just a little bit of background about the library. The Genealogical Society of Utah was founded in 1894 to gather genealogical records and assist members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with their family history and genealogical research. Um, and that being, uh, that church is, is providing the funding for the free access that all enjoy. Family Search is now the brand name for the organization, website, and the products. It is the largest um, genealogical library of its kind in the world. It is, we joke and say, it's the Disneyland of genealogy. Um, and, you know, just like um, the, the character actors at Disneyland, they have to keep fresh. They have to remember every child that comes in that day is excited to see Mickey Mouse. And it's the same thing with us, but we don't have to try hard at all because um, we see... Miracles, large and small, happen there, and the level of enthusiasm, and 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 the literally the tears of joy that that our patrons experience when they discover that long lost ancestor. It's open to the public at no charge. An estimated of fifteen hundred daily visits, less than one hundred professional staff. We have an incredible business model in that we have over six hundred volunteers, well trained, that that work there. The collection includes over 2.5 million records, um, excuse me, 2.5 million rolls of microfilm over that amount, Um, over 700,000 microfiche, 356,000 books, serials, and other formats, over 4,500 periodicals, and um, over 4,000 electronic resources. Records are available from all over the United States, Canada, the British Isles, Europe, Latin America, Asia, and Africa. We have the largest collection of clan genealogies outside of mainland China. Um, A majority of the records contain information about individuals who lived prior to 1940, and we certainly have to comply by um, right to privacy acts and and access to records in that regards, but... um, that, that's a good rule of thumb. And with the recent release of, of the 1940 census, that has been, that has really sparked an, an interest once again in family history. Records have been filmed in over 110 countries, um, territories and possessions. 
The library presents um, classes and workshops and major conferences on the use of library collection, family history records, resources, methodology, and technology. And I'll, I'll just put in an infomercial. Um, 2013 Roots Tech will be taking place in the same facility. If you have a, an interest, you might want to Google that and, and get the details on that conference. For a very long time, long before the digital era, we have taken the focus of how can we share this fabulous collection with those that don't have the opportunity to travel to this desert state. And so there has been an an increasing, um, well, a, a great emphasis on establishing small family history centers throughout the world and then granting family history center rights to major libraries. So if you were to go to the People's Republic Library in Beijing, you could order land records from New Jersey into their facility. Um, and, and so that, that has always been in place. But now that we've moved into the um, digital age, then our, our focus has turned to how can we digitize this collection and, and take it one step better so that our user, um, who may not have the opportunity to come to the library and may not um, be aware of, of the accessibility of a family history center in downtown Manhattan, um, what could they, how could we deliver this so they can access these records on their home computer? Um, we have Family Search has developed an expansive program of digitizing the collection, recruiting thousands of volunteer indexers, and putting these records online. This is moving at an incredibly rapid pace. Collections are posted daily, making these records accessible now um, from a personal computer and other electronic devices. Over 160 online courses are available on our website, um, used on instruction on how to use these records. So that's a, a great tool too. So if there's a great class taking place um, on one o'clock at one o'clock on Saturday afternoon in Salt Lake City, and you don't happen to you happen to be in Dallas, you can access um, some of that content as well. Family Search has developed what we call a research wiki. This is the Wikipedia concept based on record type, subject type, um, very, very valuable tool for historians and genealogists alike. The value of this is the, the staggering, uh, we have something like over 60,000 pages right now, but the value of this is we are saying that, you know what, we are not the only experts. There are other experts out there in the world that know about valuable records, valuable collections, and incredible websites that can accomplish this great thing. So I invite you to go to wiki.familysearch.org and check out the possibilities there. And in speaking to this audience, I invite you to contribute your knowledge as well. So you will not be putting in the name of your ancestor as a search, but you will be choosing locality on various jurisdictions and a subject type. Um, the mission of Family Search is to provide access to preserve and to make available records of valuable genealogical content. And we will do that free at, at all possible avenues with, within our organization. There are some collaborative efforts, particularly with archives and genealogical societies that may have a need to develop funding. And we will provide the software for them to input, to digitize their records, and then 
um, we'll develop an indexing base, and they may allow our users to have access to a free index, and then it may go um, to another level to ac actually access the original records. But for the most part, we want our, our users to be able to access indexes and original records. Um, what are the top genealogical records of interest which might tell you more about your family? Census, vital records being birth, marriage, and death, civil registration, church and parish records, military records, naturalization and citizenship, land and property records, probate and court records, community or county, biography, personal and family histories are a strong, strong part of our collection. We are, and when you walk in the library, that um, main floor with the family histories, um, the family history books, many one-of-a-kind, many out-of-print, the tip of the iceberg because so much more have been on, on microfilm. You're going to see those shelves. Um, you're going to see some empty shelves. They're pulling those off, digitizing those books, putting them up online, access books.familysearch.org. You want to take advantage of that. And I might mention that um, Craig has brought some, um, some little handouts that will have these websites on them, and, and they'll be accessible. Um, down by the door at the end of this presentation. Um, we have a, the library has an expansive map collection, newspaper collections. We have deferred to the university of li the university libraries, who um, many have received grant federal grant money to to digitize newspaper collections. However, we do have um, access through other other avenues to some good obituary collections. Um, the online catalog at FamilySearch.org delivers complete listings of the resources, historical records, deliver the digital content of the initiative to deliver that which may be in print or microform. This is an exciting time for historians, researchers, and genealogists. Um, just, we need to move on. I just, I've just brought along a couple of examples of items from our collection that, that you know, you take a name and a date and a place, and that's that's one thing on a pedigree chart. But you want to you want to bring color and a third dimension into your family story. This is a Utah death certificate, one of the first collections that went up online from the Utah State Archives. It's the death record of Fanny Bennett. Um, she died at the age of 89 years, six months, and eight days. She was born May 20th, 1819. Um, and she was born in Lancashire, England. Um, a, a wealth of data can be brought out from one single record, one single record. But this intrigued me. I was involved in the indexing pro project at this time. The cause of death, um, the physician, and it's in the physician's handwriting, infirmity. Then he crosses it out, and still in his own handwriting on the original record, he wrote in old age. And then underneath that, he wrote, just worn out. Wow. Now, does that tell you a story? Absolutely. Um, you, on one of the display boards in the library, you will display, see displayed a Pennsylvania will dated December 4th, 1906, Somerdale, Philadelphia. I, the undersigned, and I'm actually going to read from my... Uh, my printed copy, but there's the first portion of the will, not the full will. I, the undersigned George S. Wolfe, being of sound mind and body, write this my last will and testament. I first direct that all my debts be paid and all my fares be adjusted to establish the value of my estate. When this is done, I direct that before anything else is done, 
Okay, so first and foremost, 50 cents, and in parentheses, dot five O, be paid to my son-in-law, Charles W. Wenzel, a native of Huntington, Pennsylvania. So there's the genealogical content, right? To enable him to buy for himself a good stout rope with which to hang himself and thus rid mankind of one of the most infamous scoundrels that ever roved this broad land or dwelt outside of a penitentiary. One other. Well, I've got tons. Come on over to the library and I'll share more with you. Um, this one I picked up yesterday because I wanted an, an example of a newspaper. And this was, I, I, my desk is right next to the individual who handles collection management for the whole building. So all the brand new books come by. It's like being in the candy store, you know, and you just grab a little piece of candy. This was a book titled um, Tillamook, lest we forget, Tillamook Pioneer Association. 1979. Somebody had just donated this. Um, and, and I have to say, much of our collection is donated by generous um, individuals. So if you are authoring uh, if you are authoring material that has genealogical content, we would love if you would share that with us. Um, and the, the definition of that, my uncle served as a POW in World War II. Um, has an incredible story, and it was a long, long time, over 50 years before he would tell his story, but when he did, um, it was recorded and published, but there's no genealogical content, it's historical, so um, we have other facilities that will um, jump on that, Um, but certainly there's a a lot that you can capture over there that combines the two of of genealogy and historical historical. But I love this. In this um, little community history, um, there's a newspaper item from the Bay City Examiner dated December 20th, 1912. And the headline says, Mother Adams, aged 113, is dead. Um, Mrs. Maggie Adams died at her home at, at East Garibaldi Thursday afternoon. The exact date of her birth is not known because she was between 113 and 115 years of age. To live through one entire century and enjoy excellent health has been the lot of this remarkable woman. She was a member of the Clatsop tribe of Indians way back in the beginning of the century. Adams of the Tillamook tribe paid a visit to the north to the Clatsops. There he met Maggie and brought her to the land of his people where they made their home. Five children were, were born to them, three of whom are now living and I note that those children weren't named, Um, Mrs. Adams has been a a characteristic figure on the bay for years. Her extreme age, I love that word, um, even to the earliest settlers here, has caused all to marvel at the wonderful vitality and health of the woman. Even to the last years of her life, she could not be persuaded to rest from labor. She was seldom sick, and then only for a brief period. And it goes on to talk about what what she has experienced in in her lifetime. Um, Just truly remarkable. Obituaries are a great resource for um, family historians. I invite you to visit the library and to to share in the fabulous collection that that is available there. If your schedule is too tight, certainly check out the website when you get home, familysearch.org. I'd like to introduce our first speaker, who, Dr. Newell, Bring, Newell G. Bringhurst, um, he 
did a presentation up at Weber State University. He had another, uh, just came back from the John Whitmer Conference and had another commitment in California, and he was absolutely sure he would be able to fit this in, and a, a conflict came up. So um, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Dr. Bringhurst and then Craig Foster, who is a, a colleague colleague with Dr. Bringhurst, will share his his presentation with us today. Um, Neil G. Bringhurst is Emeritus Professor of History and Political Science at the College of the Sequoias in um, Visalia, California. He is also past president of the John Whitmer Historical Association and the Mormon History Association. He's the author of numerous articles as well as author, co-author, or co-editor of over 10 books, including his award-winning Fawn McKay Brody, A Biographer's Life, The Mormon Quest for the Presidency, from Joseph Smith to Mitt Romney and John Huntsman, and The Persistence of Polygamy, Joseph Smith and the Origins of Mormon Polygamy, as well as the forthcoming um, The Persistence of Polygamy from the Martyrdom to the Manifesto, 1844 to 1890. And I'll turn the time over to Craig. Thank you very much. The use of family history is of vital importance in crafting any comprehensive biography. Most essential is a thorough understanding of the subject's family genealogy, relationships with immediate family, including parents, siblings, and other relatives as they affected the subsequent course of that person's life. Those biographies incorporating changing family dynamics convey the drama of a complete life being lived. By contrast, those biographies lacking an adequate consideration of family project incompleteness and tend to be flat and one-dimensional. I have found such the case in the numerous biographies that I have read over the years dealing with both Latter-day Saints and uh, and non-Mormons. Moreover, in my own biographical writing, I have sought to incorporate changing family dynamics In commencing research for Brigham Young and the Expanding American Frontier, published in 1986, I was both surprised and perplexed to find that virtually all previously published biographies uh, devoted minimal attention to Young's large, diverse family. Such was the case despite the fact that Young was the much-married husband of some 55 women and father to 57 children. I traced ever-changing family dynamics in the Young family, commencing with the Mormon leader's birth in 1801 and continuing to the time of his death in 1877. I discussed the impact of evolving family relationships on other aspects of Young's life and activities. I began my biography with a brief discussion of Young's immediate forebearers, who suffered economic misfortune setting the stage for Brigham Young's difficult childhood and coming of age in a lower middle-class family with a father who was a strict disciplinarian. Young Brigham, moreover, at age 14, experienced the trauma of his mother's death. Such hard-scrabble family experiences, I suggest, uh, set into motion the the trajectory of Young's later behavior. Also affecting Young were difficulties in finding for um, a suitable occupation and steady income to support his family. Such efforts were complicated by his being uh, compelled to care for his sickly 
first wife, Miriam, who died in 1832. I attempted to show how family dynamics continued to inform Young's actions following his second marriage to Mary Ann Angel in 1834, and especially after he embraced plural marriage as commanded by Joseph Smith in 1841. At this point, as I state, quote, Young's commitment to Mormonism went through its greatest trial, end quote. Such challenges continued to multiply as the Mormon leader took on an increasing number of wives, compelling him to balance his time spent caring for his ever-growing family with his other multifaceted responsibilities, specifically as Mormon Church president, Utah territorial governor, and economic entrepreneur with multiple business interests. My biography also chronicled continuing changes within Young's family, not simply the acquisition of more wives, but also what happened to the children of these multiple wives as they, um, as they came of age and moved out on their own. Young's record as a family man was a mixed one, as demonstrated by the fact that 12 wives left him through divorce, separation, or annulment. Particularly disconcerting was Young's conflict with a disgruntled wife by the name of Ann Eliza Webb, which dragged on for some three years before their divorce was finalized in 1873. Such family problems distressed the Mormon leader, particularly as he grew older. Specifically, Young, quote, wondered when he looked at the actions of some of his wives and children if he would have to go into the kingdom of heaven wifeless and childless, end quote. In a second biography, Fawn McKay Brody, A Biographer's Life, published in 1999, I also emphasized the importance of family dynamics. In researching the book, I had the privilege of interviewing various family members, including Fawn's three sisters, one brother, along with other relatives, all of which provided firsthand insights into family relationships. Fawn Brody, a noted author and college professor, is perhaps best known for her book, No Man Knows My History, a a highly controversial biography of Mormon church founder Joseph Smith, Jr. As a result, Brody was was summarily excommunicated from the LDS church in 1945. Over the course of the following 35 years, Brody penned equally provocative biographies of four other noteworthy individuals, namely Thaddeus Stevens, a 19th century radical Republican leader, British explorer Richard F. Burton, and ultimately Presidents Thomas Jefferson and Richard M. Nixon. I must confess that I was initially attracted to Brody by her reputation as an infamous Mormon dissident regarded by many of the faithful as a God-forsaken heretic. As I got into my research, I came away with a much different impression. I found her to be a fascinating, complex individual. Her famous and accomplished biographer notwithstanding, Brody was both open and empathetic in her relations with others, uh, be they as a devoted wife to husband Bernard, a doting mother to her three children, a caring UCLA professor, or as a meticulous scholar researcher. Um, In the shaping of her character, Fawn Brody was strongly influenced by family. With more than a little irony, Brody, Mormonism's most famous dissident, came from patrician Latter-day Saint stock. Her father was Thomas E. McKay, 
uh, an LDS general authority, and her mother, Fawn Brimhall, the daughter of one-time Brigham Young University president, George H. Brimhall. Her uncle was David O. McKay, a much-beloved LDS church president from 1951 to 1970. Fawn McKay, from the time of her early childhood, exhibited both extreme intelligence and intellectual curiosity. She, however, grew up in less-than-ideal circumstances. Her childhood home of Huntsville, Utah, was a small, provincial Mormon community where her family struggled financially. Also, there were tensions within the McKay family itself, with Fawn's father manifesting unquestioning devotion to his Mormon faith, whereas her mother was much less orthodox. Indeed, um, some would suggest maybe a quiet heretic, as characterized by the author herself. Most galling to young Fawn was the repressed family environment, environment based on the McKay family dictum, what was unpleasant was not discussed, particularly if it involved religion or politics. As Fawn came of age, she found such cir- uh, circum- excuse me, circumscribed family dynamics intolerable. This set the stage of her rebellion from both family and church, Following her graduation from high school and during her student years at the University of Utah, her rebellion was muted. But, um, or as she put it, a quiet kind of moving out. But upon leaving Utah to pursue graduate studies at the University of Chicago, she met and married Bernard Brody, who came from a Latvian Jewish background but was an atheist in his personal belief. Fawn's marriage... Uh, event of her life completed her own religious odyssey from a childhood faith as devout, believing Latter-day Saint to that of a self-professed agnostic. She completely rejected uh, her religion, uh, Joseph Smith's religious claims, characterizing Mormonism's founder as a conscious fraud. Through the pages of her seminal uh, work, No Man Knows My uh, History, a work she dubbed her personal declaration of independence. Despite this, Fawn Brody maintained close ties with their Mormon family, including her devout father and equally faithful younger brother. She, moreover, maintained a lifelong fascination for Mormon history and culture while continuing to reject church doctrines and beliefs. And um, although as she neared death, suffering the pain effects of terminal bone cancer, she asked her devout, believing Latter-day Saint brother for a blessing as a final family gesture. Thus, family loomed large over the entire course of Fawn Brody's entire life. In conclusion, I encourage all aspiring biographers and historians to be sensitive to the importance of family dynamics in the shaping of the individual um, or other or individuals under consideration. Moreover, As an avid reader of biography, I look forward to the appearance of such books in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brinkhurst, who is unable to be with us today. And thank you for Craig sharing sharing his presentation. We will next hear from Dr. L. Teresa Church. She is an independent consultant and archivist. She holds a Doctor of Philosophy in Library and Information Science from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, and her, uh, her expertise and 
um, experience in, in her field and in the arts as well. She is a, she is a poetess, um, is, is very impressive. I'd like to tell you a little bit about her most recent um, project. She is an independent scholar and archival consultant, as I mentioned. She is uh, involved in research and researching in historical documentation of local African-American communities, presentation of public lectures about archival documentation and historic preservation to various community groups, individuals, and university students, exhibit consultant with responsibilities for research, curation, and installation of materials in African-American history exhibit at the Manuscripts Department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill during 2009, material culture expert, Um, with responsibilities to consult with the Tuskegee, did I say that right? Tuskegee Tuskegee Airmen and their family members to locate, identify, and research the history and authenticity of original objects and artifacts for inclusion in the Tuskegee Airmen exhibit slated for the opening um, in Tuskegee, Alabama during 2012. Do we have a date on this yet? Do we? Not as of yet. Not as of yet. Okay, so it's imminent. Um, but I do note that this conference is being held in Mobile next year? Birmingham. Birmingham. In Birmingham. Okay, we're in the right state, so <laughs> let's, you might want to make this an agenda item if you're planning to attend that, if you're in the right state. Um, She's involved with the assessment of scope and content of the collection prior to processing um, by the archival facility. She is an author, a lecturer. She has uh, a, a delightful presentation for us now. Thank you, Dr. Church. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us today, and I'm just excited to look out and have an opportunity to see so many eager faces that I hope you'll enjoy what I have to tell you. As I was preparing for this conference, and I thought about the title of our presentation today, Putting Meat on the Bones, I really had to think about that. Because for me, in the work that I'm doing and the project that I'm working on in Virginia, it's really more like finding the bones first and then putting the meat on them. And I say that because the particular community that I'm working with is a slave community. And as you know, slaves were forbidden to read and write. And as a consequence, they didn't leave any written records behind. And as they passed on and the story of their lives was passed on to people that could carry that forth through the oral tradition, as those tellers and those listeners of those stories have passed on, so too has much of the history of this particular county. The county where I was born in Virginia is Nelson County, and if you look at the top of the state and come straight down through the middle as if you're going south, you'll run right through central Virginia. And between Lynchburg and Charlottesville, there you'll find Nelson County, which is out in in a rural area. And when I went to the courthouse, I think for the very first time I was 16 years old, and this was during the era of segregation. And when I would look from the window of the public health clinic, where I went on Wednesdays, I would always look out the window as a little girl sitting on those hard benches and kind of dangling my feet looking out. And the courthouse was really a very frightening place to go because I would see the sheriffs and the policemen going back and forth out there. 
And the stories that I always heard, if you saw the man in the brown suit, that was the sheriff, or the man in the blue suit, that was the policeman. And if they were coming to your house, they were probably coming to take you to jail. And if you went to the little brick jail that was on the grounds by the courthouse, you either went there to be held for trial, and depending on the outcome of the trial, you either went back there or you went farther down the road to a penitentiary somewhere. So for me, that was a very frightening place, frightening place to look out and see. And the very next time I went to the courthouse, I was about 38 years old. And I went there uh, walking in to try and find information about my grandparents to see if I could find a date as for when they got married. And when I got there, the clerk, you know, by that time, the courthouse and all the facilities in the county seat were integrated. And it was a little bit frightening to kind of go back because this was a place that I was still remembering from the lens of segregation. And the clerk at the courthouse was very nice. And she took me to the records room and she said, you might want to start here. And she opened these great big dusty ledger books and flipped them open and just, you know, said, start looking here. And I'm thinking, I'm either going to get hay fever really bad or I'm going to be really dusty when I leave here from looking at these books. And what I did not know is that something really powerful and spiritual and intellectual was beginning to happen and would bring me to the point where I am to tell you about this today. One of the ledger books that she opened up, when she laid it on the table, of course I could see it was old because the pages were yellowed, And when I started looking for names, as she was saying, you might want to start in this column and look at a name, and then you scroll down and see if you find your person and continue over to the other columns to look for dates in the name of the spouse and look for parents of this this married couple. What I happened to see when I looked down at the page was just a list of first names. And I thought, well, who is Mary and who is Priscilla and who is Dicey and who is Lucy and who is Sarah and, and so on? And when I looked closely at trying to find a last name to go with this, there was no last name. And I looked at the column right beside their first names, and it said slave. And I thought, slave in my county? Nobody had ever talked about slavery. When I was growing up, you would hear a little mention here and there somewhere, but I never knew where plantations were. I never really knew who plantation owners were, and I never knew how many slaves a lot of them owned. So here I am, and this very strange kind of spiritual, out-of-body kind of experience overcame me. I was aware of, of course, where I was physically, but there was like a dusty, yellow mistiness that took the air. And I had the feeling that I was in a mortuary. And the more pages I turned, each name representing a body, the more bodies I found. And my husband was with me, so I'm thinking, I I was wondering what he was thinking. And he was looking, he was just going, hmm, ah, wow. And I'm not saying anything, I'm just kind of taking it in all very quietly. And we kept turning, and I connected with the project when I scrolled my finger down one column of names, and I remember saying, I'm so sorry that you are here. I wish I could have been there to do something for you, meaning that I wish I could have been there to make it easier. And, of course, looking at it from the vantage point that I could make it easy in 1987 because I was a free woman, but understanding had I been there, what could And in this particular yellow, dusty kind of atmosphere, I could 
discernibly hear a rattle of chains. It was as if there were bodies, were people walking forth with the shackles still on their ankles, and you could hear the chains rattling as they walked with each step. And I was aware that not only were the names before me, but there were presences around me. I was just surrounded by people that I could not see in flesh and, and, and bone. And when I said, I'm so sorry that you were here and I wish there was something that I could have done to make it easy for you, there was a female voice that came from my right. And she said, oh no, had you been here, you would be in the yellow pages with us. And it was overcoming and overwhelming to hear that and understand, yeah, that's exactly what would have happened. So we were there for about 35 minutes and we left. About 35 minutes was enough for a day. And we went outside, and when I went outside, the air was, you know, November air, clear, crisp, very different from what was inside. But I felt the presence that somebody followed me that I could not see, and I was just really bothered for three years, literally haunted, with somebody followed me to North Carolina, which is where I was living. And I kept hearing this urgent voice saying, you know that we are here. What are you going to do about us? What are you going to do to free us? Because you now have the capability to do that. You could not have done it if you had been here when we were here in the flesh. But you can do something now that makes sure our memory is respected and, and that other people know about us. Because the fact of the matter is that as long as the, the ledger books were closed, including me, nobody knew that they were there. And when I opened the books, I knew and I cannot keep my mouth closed. So when I began to talk about it, the more I talked, the more I was haunted. And I can remember being in my house in North Carolina, and I would get this nudge, you're not doing anything. You're not working on this project. And I stayed away for three years. And I went back in, in 1990, and I said, well, okay, that's not what I came to find. These are not the people I came to find. I came looking for my grandmother and my grandfather's marriage records. I didn't come to find all of this. So it was really frightening. What do you do when you have that much information at your disposal? And what do you do if you set forth to responsibly do something with the information that you have that respects the people that it pertains to? So I sat down and mapped out an agenda in March of 1990, and I went back. I said, I'll go and I'll look and I'll see what I can find. I would just have these conversations with this person, whomever he or she was, that followed me so persistently for three years. So I went back, and the first trip I found about a 1,000 names, and this was by looking at marriage records, birth records, and death records, and I thought that was all there was, just those binders that I had been shown, those ledger books. And I came back, and I had a 1,000 names, and I didn't really realize I had a 1,000 names until the end of my second week there. At 5 o'clock, I counted to see what I had, and I had a 1,000 names, and I thought, okay, cool. I've done what I can do. But it's interesting that the first week I was there, I wasn't finding anything, and I said, I'm going home because this has been a wasted trip, and I could have been at my home doing all of my work in North Carolina, and this voice that has been bothering me and this spirit that has been haunting me has led me here, and I didn't find anything. And I was in the bathtub at my mother's house, and I was saying, I'm going home on Friday. This is on Thursday. I'm going home tomorrow because I'm not finding anything. And a voice as discernible as the voice that you're hearing me speak with said, many are sold and gone, 
And I thought, who's in the bathroom with me talking, and what does that mean? And it was interesting enough that I got up, towel off, and, and wrote that line down. And at the end of my second week, as I said, I had a 1,000 names. So when I came back to North Carolina, I went to my church for a program, and someone in the community had been to Ghana, had gone to the slave castles, and had a slide presentation to show about her travels. And I was interested in that. And the music in the background of her presentation, there were Negro spirituals, and I thought I'd heard all of them. There was one I had not heard, many a thousand done gone. And I got chills, and I said, I have a thousand names, and all of these people are gone. What do I do with this? What does this mean? And I knew it meant something. So at that point, I started looking around and looking for information and making requests to various libraries, University of Virginia, the State Library in Richmond, Virginia, and every place I contacted and asked for information, I got information. As oddly as my questions may have been been phrased or presented, if I asked for something about Nelson County, I got something. And I thought, this is interesting. Everything I ask for, I get. This project is meant to happen. So when I went back in 1994, I was, you know, feeling broad-chested and a lot taller than I probably am. And I went back, and the second search and research trip to the courthouse, which has been my goal mine for this project, I found the books of all the wills. And I went through and I looked at every will book from A to the end of the alphabet. And I found that there were at least 389 plantation owners in my county, whereas I didn't know that there were any before. And I looked at their wills and the inventory of their wills, they had anywhere from one slave to as many as almost 200. And they were all by first names. And I thought, even though I probably would never be able to trace all of these people because I don't know what their last names were after emancipation, I don't know where they went, I don't even know where to begin, but at least I can do something to write some kind of a history of this particular slave community that will acknowledge the people who were included in the will books. And while I was there, the one storyline and one family that I came upon that was enough of a storyline for me to go from point A to point wherever you go to find what would be the end of that, there was a, a plantation owner who in 1857 had nine slaves and he had de- uh, declared that at his death he wanted his slaves to be bequeathed to his wife. And they didn't have any children. And I kept thinking, wow, what is this about? And he wanted the slaves at his wife's death to be sent to Liberia. And I thought, in my county, there was a plantation owner who had slaves who was willing to not sell them to someone else at his death or have them go to another owner to send them to Liberia. To my- that was from my county? And the story behind it, he, it, I had a different take about him as a plantation owner. He, at his death, he wanted them, if his, um, when he died, when he wanted them to go to his wife. And then at her death, when they were being prepared to be sent to Liberia, he wanted them to be hired out to someone who would be very good and kind to them. Those were his literal words. And he wanted monies to be raised after all of the debts were settled for his estate, for them to have shoes made clothing made, steamer trunks made, and money provided for them to travel with, and money to be supplied to them after they were there for at least six months. And this was in 1857. Six months later, he was dead. 
So I kept thinking, well, you know, where's the wife? And she must have died before he did because I never found any record of her. This particular family, with first names only, they left in 1857 walking from the plantation in Nelson County, walking to Richmond. From Richmond, they took a, a boat to Baltimore. In Baltimore, one of the, the baby that was in the family, the youngest child, died. They buried this child in Baltimore. And from Baltimore, they set sail across the Atlantic on the Mary Caroline Stevens going to Liberia. And they were going to a town called Carriesburg, Liberia. And I thought, my God, this is the end of that family. But it's a, as much as it's a sketch, it's a story of who these people were. And by the time they boarded the ship, they had a last name. And their last name was different from their owner's name. They were the Banks family. Their owner was a man by the name of Nicholas Detor, D-E-T-T-O-R. Had I been looking for them as people with the last name Detor, I never, ever would have found them. So later on, when I had this much information, I thought, I wonder what more can I find about them. I contacted the university in North Carolina, Duke University, and put forth my question. I'm looking for this family. They set sail for Liberia in 1857 on the Mary Caroline Stevens. What more can you help me to find out about them? I went to Duke with the question. A, a doctoral research student in the field of history was the person that helped me with my question. So as I was telling Laurie, uh, Laurie this morning when I came in, he took me to the sub-basement. I thought the basement below the, the basement. And he got a reel of microfilm and put it on. And this was a, a reel of microfilm for what is called the African Repository that contains detail about all the slaves who were sent to Africa after they were emancipated. And he put it on and started rolling really, really fast and stopped right at about midway, it looked like to me, of this roll. And he looked in and he said, you need to see this. So I looked, he said, these are your people. And I looked, and there they were, exactly where he stopped, right on their names. And the whole nine that went, the actual, the, actually there were ten, but the baby that died in Baltimore was not counted among the number. There were just nine others, and this baby was the tenth person. So I kept thinking, what happened to this person that died? But when I figured it out, there was no record of the baby when they got to Liberia. So I looked, and there they were, and it was as if, again, this family said, we want you to write about us. You ask about us, you get it. You get the microfilm reel put on, and somebody who's not you rolling it rolls and stops right on your people. That says something really kind of key and important to me. That family wants me to write about them. So yesterday, while I was here and had a bit of free time, I went over to the uh, library, and a very nice gentleman uh, helped me with the question, and I asked about this family. And we did an Internet search. And we did a keyword search, in fact, on that family's name. And he came up with a page and scrolled down, and lo and behold, where does he stop? Right on my people, the Banks family. So I say all that to say that the, the working with genealogical records, that would be the only way that I could find any information about the people that I want to find. And what I have found in trying to find information about the other African-Americans who were enslaved in my county, in Virginia, of course, have been the will books. They have been um, records of uh, their births. And what kind of gives me some insight into what the community must have been like and what it must have been like to be a slave mother 
I looked at the names of children that were born, and several kind of stood out to me in a poignant kind of way. The name Precious. Babies to slave mothers, were they were precious to them, even though they could not keep them properly. Their babies could be snatched from their arms and soul. And uh, I looked at the name Mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. That must have been what a lot of slave mothers encountered in their children being taken from them, mourning for their children. And then two other names that really stood out for me, there were twin boys born, and they were named Sixpence and Ninepence. And what did that mean? In their mother's eyes, they were just money for the plantation owner. For the plantation owner, as they grew and grew in size, grew in health, grew in value, grew in work abilities and skill, they meant money. So that was very telling about what those names of these children suggested to me in my research. Then I uh, looked at a, a letter for a man who had a, a male slave who had grown old and was too old to work, but he was a rowdy kind of fellow. And he would ride the plantation at night and probably go to different plantations, as I can surmise from what I've had, what I've read. And he would just raise a ruckus. He would stir all the other slaves up and get them riled up in all kinds of ways. His name was Mingo, M-I-N-G-O. And there was an alert put out among plantation owners. Whatever you do, and this was to the owner of Mingo, keep Mingo away from our plantation. He is stirring up the other Negroes. And the owners of these other slaves could not maintain order when Mingo would come through. Mingo would come charging through on on a stallion, and he would be intoxicated with liquor. So you can imagine the combination of that. And then there was uh, the first man to be hanged in my county was a slave man. The county was formed in 1808 from Amherst County, which is the county to the south. And um, whereas I didn't know about slavery, slavery certainly was not a quiet, peaceful kind of phenomenon. There was a man who was hanged there for inciting a rebellion in 1808 as a way to gain his freedom. He was hanged, and several others who were in this particular plot with him were acquitted. And he is uh, on record in a local newspaper that I found for the county as being the first man to be hanged in the county. So that gives you a little bit of of history, as much as I can put together about the people in this county, the African-Americans there. I'm excited about where the search will take me and what I will find. And what it really has meant is not just to look at the records that I find of Nelson County, but to look at the records of surrounding counties and surrounding states, because information, believe it or not, has popped up in little interesting pockets there. To give you a little bit of sense about another aspect of the African-American community of people who were enslaved. I stumbled across a record for the uh, work proje- Works Project Administration project, and I came across a, an interview of a former slave woman there. She was talking about what it meant to live in a house that was a haunted house. Her haunting obviously was, a, obviously was a little bit different than the kind of haunting that I had with somebody following me. But there was a lot of folklore You know, everything meant some kind of bad luck. If you went in the back door and came out the front door, if you uh, tasted salt, you would have to burn some salt because it was bad luck to taste salt and not burn salt. It was bad bad luck to taste sugar and not burn some sugar. It was bad luck to hear a whippoorwill or bad luck to hear an owl in the the night. Those things meant 
a sign of death. It was bad luck to to plant a cedar tree. If the cedar tree tree grew to size, it was growing to size to cover the grave. And if you were the person that planted it, most likely it would be your grave. So it kind of gives you a sense of the richness of the folklore that was intact in the slave community. One of the things that I found about the woman in the haunted house, she said there had been a very old woman that had lived in this house. And after she died, this woman that was the teller of it said she and her husband became the occupants of the house. And they could not sleep because this woman's ghost just haunted the house day and night. She was opening doors, walking up and down stairs and moving things about in the house. So they tore the house down. And the only way they could get peace with it was to tear the house down, raise the ground, and nobody supposedly could ever do anything in terms of having peace, living on that ground that was still apparently haunted by this spirit of this occupant woman who had lived there that would not let other people rest there. So that gives you a sense of what genealogy has given me about a slave community that left no records, but with enough persistence and enough searching there's information out there that I can write some type of a narrative about the lives of, this, of the people in this community, and I'm excited to do that. So I really thank you for listening today and letting me tell you about my search and about my experience with the records and going and, and making contact with this particular project and the, the intellectual responsibility and the social responsibility and the historical responsibility and the professional responsibility that, responsibility that comes with this. I'm excited about it, and I hope that my path somehow will cross with all of you so that you can ask me questions down the road in another year or two. Well, how is the project going, and how are the people going, and are they giving you peace? So far, they're letting me be because I think I'm doing what they want me to do, and I thank you for listening today. Thank you, Dr. Church. That was most enjoyable. We'll next hear from Craig L. Foster. He um, has a Master's of Arts in History from Brigham Young University. He also has an MLIS, Master of Library and um, Information Information Services from BYU. I know that. Um, He is a reference consultant at the Family History Library assigned to the British Reference Unit. He is an accredited genealogist in Scotland. He is an author of numerous books um, dealing with Mormon history and also the political climate. Um, We'll turn the time over to Craig. There was a statement um, in a uh, education blog that said, history should be personalized. How more personal can you get than one's own family history? And that is uh, really correct. You know, even if we can't personalize um, every specific historical event, which I, I don't think, um, uh, you know, even if we had a fascinating family, we wouldn't be able to do that. We can at least search for other families that experience that and and research them and look at uh, um, what their experiences were or look at uh, general family history. Now, genealogy can help give a more in-depth understanding of history in several ways, and and I firmly believe that uh, with with uh, history. 
that family history and history uh, should be intertwined because, in my opinion, uh, you cannot have one without the other, either way. So several ways that um, you can gain a a more in-depth understanding. One, understanding a person or people's worldview. Two, placing a person or family in a greater context of kinship and society. And three, understanding family and other connections that might have influenced the person or people being studied. Now, I'm going to give some examples, and I apologize that they're examples from my own research, and so they almost all have to do with aspects of Mormon history. So I apologize that you're you're probably getting more than you ever wanted uh, regarding Mormon history. But, you know, when in Rome, when in Salt Lake, so here we go. Um, First, understanding a person or people's worldview. In my book, Penny Tracks and Polemics, a critical analysis of anti-Mormon pamphleteering in Great Britain, as well as an article titled Henry Caswell, Anti-Mormon Extraordinaire, I analyzed the background and family history of a number of individuals in order to gain a better understanding of where these writers were coming from. For example, Anglican prebendary uh, Henry Caswell um, was was a very interesting individual. He came from a really celebrated background uh, in terms of uh, of uh, church history. His father, his uncle, his grandparents had all been involved with the Anglican Church and had uh, had a heritage of rich service within the Anglican Church. Caswell. A, in the process of uh, writing a, um, an expose about the Mormons, wrote a long statement begging his fellow Anglicans to hold true to the principles of the Church of England, even when there were problems, and he recognized that there were problems within the Church of England, but nevertheless, they should not fall away. This impassioned defense became even more significant as I looked at um, his family history and then the dynamics within his family, because in the process I learned that his brother, Edward Caswell, who was a gifted poet and songwriter, um, was a part of the movement to return uh, to Catholicism, known at the time as the Oxford Movement or the Oxford Perverts. And so... For Henry Caswell, this became very personal, and that's why there was so much passion within his writing. Second, placing a person or family in a greater context of kinship and society. I wrote an article uh, titled The Sensational Murder of James R. Hay and Trial of Peter Mortensen in which um, it included background and family information, not only on the victim, but also the murderer, as well as the witnesses, members of the jury, and lawyers, because of their kinship and kithship. Uh, it was, uh, the murder took place back in uh, 1901 here in Salt Lake City. 
And what was fascinating about it was how everyone was connected to each other in one way or another. The, uh, the victim and the murderer lived kitty-corner to each other, and uh, it had to do with um, the murderer trying to cover up the fact that he didn't have enough money to pay for debts, and he was going to lose his home. So he invited his neighbor over, who happened to be the treasurer for the lumber company that he owed all this money to because he was a, a, a house builder. He invited him over late that night to pay him, and the victim went missing. And so he started saying the very next day, well, I gave him the money. I, he must have skipped town. Uh, and... Um, the body was eventually found, and it was quite the trial. It was a sensational trial, and it, it got even more sensational to the fact that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle eventually wrote about this trial uh, in one of his books. But in the process of doing the research, it was amazing how everyone had seemed to have connections to each other Jury members, witnesses were distant, really distantly related, or you know knew uh, each other through social, um, uh, you know, networks. So that was one example of of um, where you know placing a person or family within a greater context helped give me a, a better understanding, and, and quite frankly. Uh, a deeper appreciation for the pathos of of the whole situation, including um, I even interviewed a granddaughter, a granddaughter of the victim, uh, who said that her father, to his dying day, would not talk about the murder, that she only heard about it through her mother because she had stumbled upon something and her mother said, don't ever, ever bring that up to your father. So it, it was fascinating. Um, I've also done studies of generational and marital family relationships um, in uh, community life on the Mormon frontier, the economic and social structure of Panaca, Nevada, probably more than anyone would ever want to know about that small farming community, but um, as well as defining and determining Salt Lake City's second echelon elite and family dynamics and marriage patterns among Salt Lake City's second echelon elite. And I might add, I stumbled upon the murder story by studying one of the families in this second echelon elite, you know, a, a, a well-known uh, business uh, family within Salt Lake. So you can come upon these different fascinating stories by uh, in the process of your research, and then if you just kind of look at the family dynamics, look at their heritage, etc., it's amazing what you what you can find. Third, understanding family and other connections that might have influenced the person or people being studied um, in the persistence of plural marriage within mainstream Mormonism. The example of the Barr and Mary Musser family. In a, a book edited by Noel G. Bringhurst, I might add, um, as titled Scattering of the Saints, Schism Within Mormonism, as well as um, 
Uh, the Mormon Quest for the Presidency, from Joseph Smith to Mitt Romney and John Huntsman, which I co-authored with Noel Bringhurst, and A Different God, Mitt Romney, The Religious Right and the Mormon Question, which I, I authored, I um, have looked at, again, family connections and family heritage, because in each of these cases, they played a significant impact on uh, the the people uh, that I was talking about uh, in terms of of how they were influenced with their worldview, etc. Uh, to give you an example, plural marriage, or polygamy, was officially ended in the LDS Church in 1890. There were, however, some individuals who did not want to give up that practice because of religious, uh, um, uh, you know, because they felt that they needed to do what God had originally commanded. And um, as time went on, the church would try to work with these people and eventually just started excommunicating people who continued to practice plural marriage or polygamy. The example with Bar Musser was that um, he continued to practice, but very secretly, and so the church never found out that he was practicing plural marriage and he had a second wife and second uh, family. I looked at the, uh, at the dynamics from the point of view of the second family and the fact that they couldn't go by the name of Musser they used the name Barnes, etc., and so forth, and how that had to do with um, with their worldview. And it, uh, it it's a fascinating and, and unfortunately just uh, an extremely sad story uh, dealing with um, with that. And so, if you look at the uh, at the family dynamics and the family heritage you can sometimes see the impact that it has not only on one generation, but actually several generations or more. And and it can be just incredibly interesting and, and as I said, sometimes very sad. I've been very lucky to be able to do a lot of this by working at the Family History Library, uh, you know, uh, working uh, on my own little projects during lunch and, and after hours. And I would encourage you, as Laurie had encouraged you, to um, to go to the library if you can, to look at our website, familysearch.org, as well as to uh, go to other uh, sources. And I would strongly encourage all of you to intertwine family history with, with local and uh, regular history. Thank you. Thank you very much, Craig. I would like to suggest that if you have the opportunity to go over to the library, when you go through the lobby and onto the main floor, your line of vision will take you to a full wall display of uh, the common pedigree of some notable individuals, including um, what Shirley Temple, Donny Osmond, is Lucille, Lucille Ball on that Ball, one? The Wright Brothers. The Wright Brothers. Um, Craig was the project manager on that particular display, um, and I had the good fortune of working under his direction. Very, very interesting. Um, you might want to check that out. In the time remaining, we would like to open. Um, 
open it up to any questions that you might have and who you might want to direct that to. For the purpose of the recording, I will repeat your questions so that, that we will capture that in the sound in the, for the podcast. Yes? Okay, thank you. Um, she's asking, what are the hours of the Family History Library? Um, Tuesdays through Saturdays, it's open from 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. On Mondays, it is open... Um, 8 a.m. to 5 8 to 5. Yeah. This, sat- this weekend is the LDS General Conference, oh, and yeah, it will right. be closed on Saturday. If I had my way, that facility would be open 24 hours a day. You might not have full service at 3 a.m., but, but <laughs> you would have access to the collection um, in that regard. So this, this is a very unusual circumstance that it is, is closed this Saturday. Okay, I will repeat the question um, directed to Dr. Church. How did the family opt for the bank's name? There is no information to discern whether or not they were owned by another slave owner and had acquired that name through that channel or if this was a name that they chose for themselves upon being emancipated. Some families carried the names of their owner, the present owner, or maybe several owners prior to that if they had been sold multiple times. And some people chose a new name of their own determination if they wanted to just get rid of all traces of everything that was with slave life for them. So I really don't know how they chose that last name. Okay, thank you. I'm also going to ask that you state your name and where you are from, so we'll backtrack on, on my short thinking and ask you your name and where you are from. Okay, Peggy Lloyd from Arkansas. Thank you very much. Any other questions? I'm waiting for someone to ask if Craig Foster is a practicing polygamist, and I can tell you right now, I know his wife, and he's all, all she, or one wife is all he can handle. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I might add something. Usually I don't mention this, but I'm going to because we're talking about um, how dealing with uh, genealogy and how it can influence historical events or um, have an impact on a family. My, my wife, the one wife, um, she uh, probably would hit me um, if I, uh, because I usually don't bring this up, but I'm going to just to give you an idea of when you do genealogy as you're working on a historical subject and how um, you can find so much information, the murder was um, a, uh, it would be a great, great uncle of my wife's. The guy who had the uh, secret plural wife was my wife's great-grandfather, all the same family, all of which I stumbled upon when I first started working on 
that uh, project to look at some of the more quote quote prominent families within Salt Lake City when I decided to do a study of of these uh, families and let me actually back up and say the reason why I started to do the studies of the family was because I became aware that she descended from this one person who was extremely prominent who was a a, a, a confidant of Brigham Young and I said, you know, there's really no biography out there about this guy, uh, you know, your ancestor. Maybe there ought to be. And just by starting to do that study is how I got on to these other topics. And so you never know for sure what your family or person of interest who might be connected one way or another and what other topics might come out of out of that that you would want to pursue uh, during the course of your research. Thank you. You had a comment, sir. I have a curiosity question. Polygamy is a problematic issue. How within the, the church do you deal with that as, as, a, as a fact, and either exposing it or distancing from it? How, is there a tension that's caused by sustaining that reality? Or? Well, nowadays... Um, Craig, would you repeat? Oh, yeah. The, the, the question the is, um, uh, you know, the, the potential conflict of, of uh, the history of polygamy within the LDS Church and how do we handle that nowadays, et cetera, and so forth. Um, nowadays, you will find very few people, if any, who would be practicing plural marriage within the LDS Church because if anyone starts that they are they are immediately excommunicated um no ifs ands or buts so you don't have that today you there are a number of breakoff groups who continue to practice that but um in terms of looking at it as you know historical um in historical research as well as doing family history um it, it makes for a very interesting. Uh, I presented a paper at a conference a couple of months ago, which will now be one of the essays in the in the book that Noel Bringhurst and I are uh, co-editing, uh, dealing with plural marriage, uh, where I looked at the wives and children of Brigham Young and some of the other early uh, leaders, and in terms of genealogy. It, uh, it can be kind of convoluted at times. But really, when you look at it, um, we, as you look at that as, as a historian and as a genealogist, yes, you look at all of the wives and children of the end of, of the man together, but really, for you, you focus on each family. And uh, as uh, historians, family historians, we view each wife as a separate family, really, um, under kind of a larger umbrella, I guess you could say. So uh, there, it's, it makes for fascinating uh, research, and uh, it, it has its pitfalls, but overall it's, it's really quite interesting, especially for people like myself who I really do get into um, family dynamics and kinship. I, I love how, seeing how people are related uh, and it, when you get back far enough, we're all related. So it, to me, it's a lot of fun. Thank you. Anyone else? In conclusion, 
May I share this, this quote with you from the author Gerald Lund? He said, in some ways, our lives are like circles, circles in which we move and live and act. Some of us live longer, and so we make wider circles than others. Some people are great and noble, and their circles can become quite large. I could name hundreds, Joseph Smith, George Washington, Columbus, the Apostle Paul, who we know by name because their circles spread wide and touched many people. But for every one of those big circles, there are a thousand unnamed and unknown people whose circles seem very small and insignificant by comparison, and yet to God they are not insignificant. To God it is not how large our circles become or how well known we are to the world. All that matters is how we, you, me, each and every one of us fills that circle. Have a good afternoon.